Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. <laughs> Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why, so now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive materials delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock, and Jason Reed. Visiting in various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website. Bowie at cheapthings.com. Book early. S is for scary monsters and super creeps. So, uh, yeah, Bob, uh, this is a bit weird, this, right? But on Wikipedia, it says that not to be confused with scary monsters and nice sprites. What is that? I've Googled, <laughs> I've Googled it, and we wouldn't have confused it anyway, but apparently no. it's an electronic music producer called Skillex. Is that? Oh, right, Skillex. Is that, uh, I, I know Skillex. Do you? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, you're a musicologist, and I know well, now, I Bob, know. particularly about that kind of stuff. Anyway, scary monsters and super creeps, also known simply as scary monsters, obviously, is a 14 studio album by David Bowie, released on the 12th of September 1980 by RCA Records. It was Bowie's final studio album on that label and his first following the Berlin trilogy of Low, Heroes and Lodger. Though considered very significant in artistic terms, the trilogy had proven less successful commercially. With Scary Monsters, Bowie achieved what biographer David Buckley called the perfect balance of creativity and mainstream success. As well as earning critical acclaim, the album got to number one and went platinum in the UK, and it successfully restored Bowie's commercial standing in the States. So looking at the production then, according to co-producer Tony Visconti, David Bowie's method on Scary Monsters was somewhat less experimental and more concerned with achieving a commercially viable sound than had been the case with his recent releases. To that end, the composer spent more time on his own development developing lyrics and melodies before recording, rather than improvising music in the studio and making up words at the last minute. Aside from one cover, Tom Verlaine's Kingdom Come, all tracks will be credited to Bowie alone, unlike the Berlin trilogy, where there was an increasing amount of input from his collaborators. Yeah, uh, amongst those collaborators, Brian Eno is no longer present on Scary Monsters, but Chuck Hammer added multiple textural layers, deploying guitar synth, and following his absence from Lodger, Robert Fripp came back with the distinctive guitar sound that he'd earlier lent to heroes. So Chuck Hammer, he's the guy who was uh, stood outside the uh, <laughs> the hotel room while uh, Bowie was uh, asking Lou Reed to come out and fight like a man. That's right. Isn't oh, is that him? Yeah, Chuck Hammer, you're right. You're I right. Think he's right. Oh, I wish I was Chuck Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> what a story. <laughs> uh, Bruce Springsteen's pianist Roy Bitten was back for his first Bowie album since Station to Station five years earlier, while The Who's Pete Townsend guested on Because You're Young. This will be the fifth and last Bowie album featuring the rhythm 
rhythm section of Dennis Davis, Carlos Alomar and George Murray legends, uh, which have been together since Station to Station. Yeah, Bowie continued to develop songs using non-traditional methods for It's No Game number one. He challenged guitarist Fripp to imagine he was playing a guitar duel with B.B. King, where he had to out B.B. B.B., but do it in his own way. (laughs) Uh, This is a quote. We were doing either Up the Hill Backwards or It's No Game, and I said, uh, any suggestions, Fripp recalled, and David replied, Richie Blackmore, because David isn't really a guitarist. He couldn't give me more of a ground plan than that, but I knew what he meant. Now then, do you know where that quote comes from, Mark? I don't know. Mine. That was when I was interviewing Fripp. So really? That's, that's on the Wikipedia page. Yes, yeah, so, uh, yeah, he was talking about that. He, <laughs> all he could offer him was say, just play like, think Richie Blackmore. Don't play like Richie Blackmore. Think Richie Blackmore. And he, th- well, they were on the same level. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, you've got Robert Fripp's technique. It's completely different to uh, Richie Blackmore. Richie Blackmore is a great technician. Mm, yeah, But, of, of course, course, he's a proper rock guitarist, whereas uh, Fripp, he just reinvented the bloody thing, didn't he? So yeah. it's a strange one to throw at him. But it, then again, what was it said to Reeves Gabrels? He said, like, you know, you, you were a, a Cuban disenfranchised something or other. Right. You know, there were some bizarre, some bizarre well, things being thrown around, weren't there? Yeah, it's a bit like uh, Reno's oblique strategies, isn't it? That kind of thing. They don't really make sense, but then on another level, they do. Yeah, I suppose it just makes you think, doesn't yeah. it? And, then that, and that obviously, it just really gives you a blank canvas to do anything because mm. it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So fashion began as Jamaica, unable to think of anything to write, Bowie discarded the song until late in the recording cycle when it was transformed into the song that appears on the album. Other tracks also began with different names, Ashes to Ashes as People Are Turning to Gold, Teenage Wildlife as It Happens Every Day and Scream Like a Baby as Laser. The lyric Scream Like a Baby was sung as I Am a Laser. Uh, Laser was originally written in 1973, recorded by Ava Cherry and the Astronauts, made up of Bowie collaborators Ava Cherry and Jeff McCormack and demoed by Bowie during the sessions for Young Americans in 75. Uh, Is Her Life After Marriage was fully written and recorded for the album, but for unknown reasons, never released. I Feel Free by Cream uh, was recorded in Rough Mix, but didn't appear on a Bowie album until a recording of it came out in 1993's Black Tie White Noise. The public's first taste of Scary Monsters was Ashes to Ashes, which was released as a single one month uh, before the album and got to number one in the UK. Built around a guitar synth theme by Chuck Hammer, it revisited the character of Major Tom from Bowie's early hit Space Odyssey. Aside from its critical and commercial success as a song, the accompanying music video set a benchmark for the art form. This is Well, we've discussed this, haven't we? It's just such a work of art, that is. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, notwithstanding the lush textures of Ashes to Ashes, Bowie's sound on the album was described by critics as being harsher and his worldview more desperate than anything he'd released since Diamond Dogs. This was exemplified by such tracks as It's No Game Number 1, the album's opening featuring lead female vocals in Japanese, uh, the title track with its prominent percussion effects and Bowie's exaggeratedly cockney accent. Uh, The second single, Fashion, which seemed to draw parallels between style and politics and which had its own high-regarded video and Scream Like a Baby, a tale of political imprisonment. In Teenage Wildlife, against a musical backdrop that owed much to his song Heroes, Bowie was variously thought to be taking aim squarely at new wave artists like Gary Newman or reflecting on his younger self in the lyrics uh, where he says a broken nose mogul are you one of the new wave boys same old thing in brand new drag comes sweeping into view as ugly as a teenage millionaire pretending it's a whiz kid world 
So he's already had a go at um, uh, Gary Newman, hadn't he? Um, he had. It, that was all part and parcel of the Kenny Everett show, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, in 79, yeah. Yeah, and he'd been invited in to watch David Bowie perform, Gary mm. Newman, and uh, Bowie got <laughs> got wind of it, got him kicked out, and then made sure that he wasn't also on the programme. That's a story. Yeah. So he obviously hit a, a bit of a nerve with Bowie there, didn't he? Certainly he did. I mean, and the thing also is that, you know, funnily enough, thinking about it now, you would have to say that Gary Newman was a little bit closer to perhaps Kraftwerk Oh, definitely. Than Bowie, because I mean, that all that androidal, very robotic kind of thing that Gary Newman yeah. was doing was what, what Kraftwerk was doing, not really Bowie. It was almost like a Bowie at one remove, wasn't it? Because, as you say, you wouldn't associate that stuff that Gary Newman was doing uh, with any of the early 70s, like the Ziggy stuff or even Young Americans, or it? It was just that little, you know, probably that two-year period that Bowie went through in the late 70s. Yeah, which was uh, which owed a lot to, you with, know... With Noy and Kraftwerk and yeah, all the rest well, of it, yeah. Anyway, um, okay, so the uh, rear sleeve of the album contained references to four of Bowie's earlier albums. The cover artwork of Scary Monsters is a collage by Edward Bell featuring Bowie in the uh, Piero costume worn in the Ashes to Ashes music video along with Brian Duffy photographs. It is one of my favourite Bowie covers this as well. It's classic. The original vinyl album's rear sleeve referred to four earlier albums namely the immediately preceding Berlin trilogy and 1973's Aladdin Insane the latter also having been designed of course and photographed by Duffy. Yeah, we've talked about that previously, haven't we? Because uh, it was to who would take the credit for the uh, the flash, the lightning yeah, flash right, on Aladdin yeah. Sane. The cover images from Low Heroes and Lodger, the last showing Bowie's torso superimposed on the figure from Aladdin Sane's inside gatefold picture, were portrayed in small frames to the left of the track listing. Their whitewashed brushstrokes were reportedly designed to symbolise the discarding of Bowie's old persona. The original framed album artwork was featured in the David Bowie's Touring Museum exhibit. So oh. I, I have seen it. And uh, I've also seen, in fact, I don't know if you, you saw it earlier on, but I took a photograph of a photograph from my uh, laptop, and it is of the, uh, the clown costume. Oh, yeah, which, I've seen which, it, Which is yes. in there, which is a, a, a really beautiful thing. I mean, you look at all of the techniques and, 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 and imagery that went into Bowie's uh, clobber. Yeah. But that is just a really delicate and, and beautiful um, costume. Really, really yeah. amazing to see. I know this is going to be a stupid question, because you're going to say 12 by 12, but if you, the album artwork for uh, Scary Monsters, I mean, how big was it in reality? I know, it's, I, th- I just seem to remember it being bigger. If anybody wants to tell me otherwise, but just in, the, you know, it's a few years ago since yeah. I've seen it, but I remember it being... Uh, much bigger than a, than an album size. I don't, right, okay. I don't think it was same size okay, as, right. an, as an artist would call it. Right. So uh, to the singles and other songs, following the release of Ashes to Ashes in August 1980, prior to the album and fashion in October that year, the title track was issued as a single in January 1981. The album's final single, Up the Hill Backwards, was released in March of that year. Other songs from this period included both sides of the single, Alabama song, Back with Space Oddity, the latter a stark remake that debuted the, on the New Year's Eve 1979 Kenny Everett video show just mentioned mm. and uh, has served as a ritualistic purification of Bowie's most famous number prior to its demolition with Ashes to Ashes. Ooh. So we know that again they're uh, talking about the fact that uh, it's just uh, self-referencing, isn't it? Yeah, And the great thing is also uh, the video which we talked about with Ashes to Ashes <laughs> where his mum supposedly <laughs> appeared. Some of the other cast we'll be talking about in a short while. Yeah, that's right. So RCA released Scary Monsters in September 19. 19- 1980 with the promo line often copied, never equaled, seen as a direct reference to the new wave acts that Bowie had inspired over the years. It was highly praised by critics. Record Mirror gave it a rating of seven stars out of five. What? Did it? That's good, isn't it? <laughs> it must have been good. I know it's good. Bloody good. They must have loved it. While Melody Maker called it an eerily impressive stride into the 80s, and Billboard reported that it should be the most accessible and commercially successful Bowie LP in years. 
Well, there you go. Uh, the album's number one placing in the UK charts was Bowie's first since Diamond Dogs in 74, while in the US it peaked at number 12, which was the highest stateside showing since low almost four years earlier. Well, you can sort of understand that, can't you? Because, you know, at least half of it, the first half is definitely uh, slanted towards uh, the commercial side of things, isn't it? And then the second bit is more experimental. Yeah, and after what he'd been through, I mean, he was yeah. being particularly uh, obtuse, wasn't he? And, and, and experimental with the with the Berlin trilogy. Yeah. He knew he was being that. And, and so he decided to go against the grain, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, despite the worldwide megastardom and commercial success that Bowie would achieve in coming years, most notably with his next studio album, Let's Dance, in 1983, many commentators consider Scary Monsters to be his last great album, the benchmark for each new release. Well-regarded later efforts such as Outside, Earthling, Heathen and Reality were cited as the best album since Scary Monsters. In the latest edition of his music biography of the singer, Strange Fascination, David Buckley suggests that Bowie should preemptively stick up the next album, Best Since Scary Monsters, and have done with it. I mean, I got sick of seeing all that because it was like almost like a default uh, critic thing, wasn't it? You know, he, he released a good album in the 90s, let's say it's the best one since Scary Monsters. Everybody seemed to do it. It was. It was a cliche that was all over the shop, wasn't it? It was. Okay, Bob, let's get to the press and interviews at the time. This was published in Rolling Stone magazine. More and more, I'm prepared to relinquish sales as far as records go by sticking to my guns about the kind of music I really wish to make, Bowie told Rolling Stone when Scary Monsters came out in 1980. In some ways, it was one of the most avant-garde, convention-defying records of his career. The first voice we hear on it is actress Michi Hirota's shouting in Japanese. A lot of its lyrics suggest a cut-up technique that Bowie had learned from William S. Burroughs, and it shot through with a dissonance and burst of unexpected noise. Uh, there's an awful lot of mistakes on that album, this is what Bowie says, uh, that I went with rather than cut them out. He said, uh, one tries as much as possible to put oneself on the line artistically. Fair enough. Even so, Scary Monsters worked just fine as pop music. It was a substantial hit, reaching number one in the UK. Both Ashes to Ashes and Fashion were staples of MTV's early years. Probably didn't hurt that MTV VJ Alan Hunter had appeared in the fashion video. Hey. Crafty. Crafty. Very much. It also featured a murderer's row of phenomenal musicians, including Bowie's late 70s rhythm section of drummer Dennis Davis and bassist George Murray, Pete Townsend, an East Street band pianist, and station-to-station vet Roy Bittan. Okay, the album's signature sound, though, is Robert Fripp's squalling lead guitar. Most impressively, the corrosive blurts that streak through the funky fashion. That song, like Fame, and The Man Who Sold The World, was one of Bowie's last-minute brainstorms. It had been an abandoned track called Jamaica, mentioned this, haven't we? Mm. Uh, Until he turned up with a completed lyric just as Tony Visconti was starting to mix a record. Scary Monsters, Fripp said, represented Bowie's decision to take his work in rock and roll seriously. Anyone who goes to New York takes his work seriously. That city certainly has that effect. So his return to a degree of involvement with New York, I think, is very healthy. Fair enough. Good quote. In a sense, Scary Monsters opened the 80s looking back on the 70s. The album scavenged and recast bits of unreleased Bowie compositions spanning his entire career. Scream Like a Baby, for instance, as it was already done in 1973, as we've mentioned. The clown outfit and makeup he wore on its cover and in the Ashes to Ashes video recalled his early days in mime. The music is a mask the message wears. The music is a Piero. And I, the performer, and the message equipped to Rolling Stone back in 1971. Uh, Bowie also took a shot at the generation of artists who come up in his shadow. Same old thing in Brand New Drag, he snapped at the New Way Boys on Teenage Wildlife. Scary Monster's masterstroke is its most self-referential song, Ashes to Ashes, which alluded to Space Oddity with the line, we know Major Tom's a junkie, and reminded listeners just how much Bowie had grown and changed in the intervening uh, decade. In 
1980, there were millions of new fans for him to reach and transform as well. Uh, my introduction to David Bowie was watching Ashes to Ashes on MTV, Marilyn Manson told Rolling Stone. Uh, I was confused and captivated. So you're looking at 1980, and uh, we've mentioned it here previously, um, that the punk generation, quite a lot of them were into Bowie. So Susie yeah. Sue was into David Bowie, and so was Billy Idol and, and Tony James. Those yeah, and people. Sid Vicious and all the rest, yeah. All that lot, yeah. Uh, but, but it's around about this time that his uh, influence really came to the fore, wasn't it? Which yeah. is all part and parcel of the new romantic scene. Yeah, it was... It was- perfectly shaped by Bowie wasn't it when you look back at that they didn't really rejig it that much you know if you look at the uh, the flamboyance of Bowie whereas the, the punk thing was obviously originally based around rip stuff which was all taken from New York Malcolm McLaren yeah, came sure. the punk, he brought the punk look back from New York and it was predominantly Richard Hell yeah it was it? yeah with it with their safety pins and all that kind of mm. stuff so that's where the punk thing went and it got more and more exaggerated uh, but come 1980 they turned the back so it's like another reaction to a reaction so you've got punk and then the new the uh, new romantic thing was just exactly two fingers to punk wasn't it it was very much so just it, the fact that there was hardly any guitars in there you know it's since all of a sudden wasn't it and, and all that flamboyance and image and all them tea towels and kilts <laughs> oh yes that's what it kilts. was really but yeah. that, that really was a defiant we're gonna look very stylish now and, and it was kind of exemplified really by spandau ballet mm. i suppose you know mm. uh, and steve strange yes. now then so we're gonna get to some uh, of the the uh, blitz kid okay so uh, yeah have a look at the blitz kid thing here rob all right, OK, so the Blitz Kids were a group of young people who frequented the uh, weekly Blitz Club Night in Covent Garden in London from 1979 to 80 and are credited with launching the new romantic subcultural movement. Steve Strange and Rusty Egan co-hosted Tuesday nights and imposed a strict dress code amongst core attendees, Boy George, Marilyn, Alice Temple, Perry Lister, Princess Julia, Philip Salon and Martin Degville, later be uh, frontman, of course, of uh, Sig Sig Sputnik. With Tony James, we yeah. just mentioned. Crucially, this is interesting, the the club lay between two art colleges, St. Martin's School and Central School, mm. and it became a testbed for student fashion designers who set London ablaze during the 1980s. Those included Stephen Jones, Kim Bowden, Fiona Dealey, Stephen Linnard, David Hola, Steve Stewart, John Galliano, big name, Darla Jane Gilroy, and more. Uh, the Blitz began making headlines thanks to the outrageous style of clothes and makeup for both sexes subsequently documented by Gary Kemp in his 2009 book, I Know This Much. Yeah, Andrew Tchaikovsky, ex-manager of The Damned, and Susan Carrington, who'd started the Roxy Club with Barry Jones, are said to have introduced Strange and Egan to The Blitz. After coming together at Billy's nightclub in Soho in 1978, the post-punk generation found themselves bored with the whole nihilist punk genre. Strange and Egan introduced regular Roxy music and Davy Bowie nights at Billy's, and in an effort to find something new and colourful, the denizens took to wearing bizarre homemade costumes and clothing and emphatic makeup, presenting a highly androgynous appearance. So we talked um, previously, I think, about a club in Manchester called Pips, yeah. which had a Bowie room and a Roxy room, mm. and they were they were they were rehashing that idea. I'm sure. I'm sure there was a, a similar thing in the mid-70s in London as well, but yeah. we've said before, it's a great idea. It is. You it listen is. to Bowie for half an hour and think, right, I want a bit of Roxy music now. You just go and listen to like half an hour of Roxy music, right, back to Bowie. Oh, how wonderful is that? Perfect. But it is interesting, all this stuff. Like As you say, it's culture recycling itself, isn't it? Just as the, you know, the late 60s, early 70s got a big bit drab and denim-y. 
you know, suddenly glam came along. It's the same thing, isn't it? Late 70s, everybody's like a bit earnest and it's a bit punky and a bit jeans and shirts. Yeah, well, I mean, before that, that was the thing where all the, the blues guys with the denims and all that, they mm. were they were kind of booking the trend of the likes of, you know, Bill Haley. Yeah, sure. And, and, and Jerry Lee and these guys who were amazing rockers but would always look pretty, like, you know, well turned yeah, out on stage. Yeah. So everything's a reaction to what goes before, isn't it? We know that. Of course it is. After three months, this group of kindred spirits moved on from Billy's, which had effectively formalised the once-a-week club night, to another every Tuesday at the more elitist Blitz wine bar in Great Queen Street, which is widely considered as home to the New Romantic Movement and prompted the Blitz Kids epithet in mainstream newspapers led by the Daily Mirror on the 3rd of March, 1980. Quite specific there. Yeah. OK, so this is uh, the story of when Bowie turned up at Blitz, and this is from Wales Online. So Steve Strange is taking a step back in time as he has a thin white duke to thank for his amble down memory lane. So uh, Steve Strange had first met David Bowie at the Blitz in London. Covent Garden in 1980, the club that had Boy George as its cloakroom attendant and Marilyn as the cigarette girl. Uh, I was on the door at the club and as usual we were all up to full capacity when I saw a black stretch limo go round the corner three times, said Strange. At the time, we'd already been given two warnings from the council over fire regulations and the number of people we had in the club. Uh, this is great. Uh, in fact, the week before, I had to turn Mick Jagger away from the door because we were up to capacity. You think you would just go in and give, like, you know, perhaps um, however many people were in uh, Jagger's party, you think you'd just go and get a table, give them all 20 quid each and say, bugger off, we've got Mick Jagger and his mates coming yeah, in here and it's yeah. going to be great for publicity. But to his credit, in a way, he didn't. Uh, he continued, he was with Sabrina Guinness, the heiress of the Guinness Millions, and Jagger said to me, do you know who I am? I said, of course I do. Please don't make this any harder than it is. Luckily, I knew Sabrina and she calmed him down. <laughs> An irate Jagger. Uh, so this time, he continued, the limo pulls up and this really strappy French woman called Coco informed me, I've got somebody very important in the back of that black limousine. Because she was so stroppy, I gave her quite an arrogant answer. But when she said it was David Bowie, I went into meltdown. Uh, I thought, oh my God, what do I do now? If the kids queuing to get in the club even know that he's in that limo outside, he'll be mobbed. So I went into overdrive thinking, how the hell are we going to get him into the building without causing too much of a fracas? So he said, I called security and we opened up the back level of the club, which was a fire exit, and got him upstairs to put him in what we thought would be a quiet area away from prying guys. However, inevitably, uh, word spread from the queue and we had to get security downstairs to stop people coming upstairs. <laughs> of course you did. David Bowie. <laughs> He continued, everybody wanted to be near him. It got to one point where his assistant Coco came up to me and said, David wants you on his table. I wasn't being arrogant, but I said, excuse me, I have my job to do. I take my job very seriously. This is not a goldfish bowl. The kids that are in this club, they're here because they feel at home. My shift doesn't finish until half past one in the morning. Brave. And then he says, when I finally went up to him, he said to me, I've been watching you and love what you've been doing and the sound that you're creating musically. I love the way you've evolved this whole new romantic movement. You're a very creative group of people and I'd like you to be in my next video. He said, I'd like you to style and choose the extras for my video. I thought to myself, oh my God, this couldn't get any better. This is amazing. I know, it must be like a dream. The video is Ashes to Ashes, one of Bowie's most visually stunning and which uh, regularly features in polls for the greatest videos of the 80s, thanks to Steve Strange, unorthodox creative vision. Costing £250,000, it was at the time the most expensive music video ever made. It incorporated scenes both in solarised colour and in stark black and white featuring Bowie in a gaudy Piero costume that became the dominant visual representation of his scary monsters phase. However, while Strange and three extras star in the video alongside the singer, the Welshman laughs when he retells the story of the shoot, a far from glamorous affair. 
I will get into that in, in, in a minute, but uh, it was far from glamorous because you remember. Um, <laughs> the, the, the old guy on the beach. <laughs> the, old, the old guy on the beach. So if you're listening to this podcast and perhaps you've not heard some of the earlier ones, there's a really great story of um, David Mallet. He's filming uh, the video on yes. the beach. Is it in South End? It was one, I think. I think it was, yes, yes, yes. And uh, and while they're doing it, it's a big production number, as you can tell, £250,000. And uh, there's a bloke collecting driftwood on the beach and uh, and they have to wait for him to walk by, and he's walking by really slowly. And David Mallet or one of the crew says to him, um, "Do you know who that is?" And he said, "Yeah, it's a cat in a clown suit." <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favourite quotes ever. <laughs> oh, and Bowie said uh, a little bit later on. He said, uh, "Sometimes when I get a bit carried away with myself, I think to myself." Yeah, I am just a cat in a clown's costume. <laughs> anyway, this is what Steve Strange said about the following day. The four of us were told to meet outside the Hilton Hotel in London, and we were all thinking, oh my God, we've got to be going somewhere fabulous. It's got to be somewhere like Barbados, somewhere hot and tropical. Yay! <laughs> Little did he know. So he says, so we get to the hotel about 6.30 in the morning, then we see this coach outside, and we think it's got to be a coach taking us to the airport. Then we're told we're going to South End. The one glamorous thing about it was David did close off the whole beach. But to be honest, there weren't that many people on the beach as it was a freezing cold day, he said. He said it was a joy and a pleasure to work with him. After that, he became a friend. In those days, you had each other's home phone numbers and there was no changing your mobile phone like there is now. If you didn't move around too much, you could stay in touch. And we did. He came to my other clubs, such as the Camden Palace, where I revived the Café de Paris in central London. He came there a couple of times as well. Strange said no pictures of him and Bowie exist, as those uh, that he had were destroyed in a devastating fire that swept through his London home, which is a townhouse in the uh, Bow Quarter in 1999. It's tragic. He said it was the worst thing that happened to me, apart from my drug addiction, where he'd been battling heroin, hasn't he? Uh, to have to sift through the carnage of the fire was so difficult. I literally lost everything. Yeah, that is That's tragedy. awful, isn't it? Uh, this is from Classic Rock as well, isn't it? Bob? Yeah, it is. So they write, In keeping the advanced single Ashes to Ashes, which resurrected his popular Major Tom character from Space Odyssey, went to number one in the UK while performing strongly in numerous countries. In the US, uh, the song had an entirely different fate, just missing the Billboard Top 100 and peaking at number 101, which just seems ridiculous. Yeah. How did that fail? Fashion, a direct descendant from Station to Station's golden years, following in short order, pushing Scary Monsters to the top of the charts in the UK. Bowie reached number 12 in America. Elsewhere, however, many of the songs on Scary Monsters were as challenging and unconventional as critics and discerning Bowie files could have hoped for. The opening tune, It's No Game, married a plodding dirge, what? Mm. To Bowie's uh, intentionally strangled vocals and a female narration of the lyrics in Japanese. Up the Hill Backwards commented on the singer's recent divorce over a lurching 7-4 beat, and then the title track arose from a sinister Robert Fripp guitar figure, which was indicative of its subject's descent into madness, all before the aforementioned singles made their entrances. I'd love to know what Robert Fripp made of the uh, plodding dirge line. Bowie's imagination continued to fly unchecked and unafraid on the second side over the anthemic heroes-like march of teenage wildlife, the intriguing chord changes that made Scream Like a Baby half new wave, half hard rock, a lush interpretation of Tom Verlaine's Kingdom Come, complete with girl group backing vocals, a densely arranged Because You're Young, boasting windmill power chords from Pete Townsend, and concluding with a civilised reprise of It's No Game that proved a Dr Jekyll to the opener's Mr Hyde. 
All this inspired creativity at the power station had transpired between February and April 1980, but amazingly, only one finished vocal was in the can, so David decided to take a few more weeks to polish off his lyrics. By June, he'd reunited with Visconti at the latter's London studio, and it was there that he cut some of his finest words and vocals, elevating Scary Monsters up amongst his very best career efforts. As for the young decade still ahead, the tragic murder of his good friend John Lennon on December the 8th cast Bowie into a period of paranoid isolation spent mostly caring for his son, uh, Zoe, instead of touring or promoting Scary Monsters. Simultaneously, the singer's desire to wait until his onerous contractual obligations to former manager Tony DeFries could expire in October 1982 led to a dalliance in theatre, uh, Bowie's critically acclaimed role in the production of The Elephant Man, collaborations with disco magus Giorgio Moroder on their uh, Cat People soundtrack, and Queen, Under Pressure, and an EP of songs written for Bertolt Brecht's play Baal. Indeed. By the time David Bowie released Let's Dance nearly three years after Scary Monsters, its unapologetic embrace of the mainstream was so at odds with much of the singer's outsider career arc that some wondered whether he'd finally forgotten himself. The masses embraced this latest version, however, remaking Bowie into a sleek global pop star. It would be for quite some time before Bowie's inevitable return to the risk-taking creativity of Scary Monsters. Well, we can't deny that, can we? You know, Bowie wanted <laughs> mega fame and pop stardom. He did, and and it is alluded to in there, but of course he was still contracted to uh, Tony DeFeese, and he was kind of uh, bloody-minded about it, but you can't Mm. say you blame him. Mm. And and that is why, uh, again, uh, just speculating, but it seems to make sense that he did make those albums of just pure creativity and experimentalism, because he didn't didn't really bother about having a massive hit. And of course, Young Americans, that kind of haunted him a little bit, didn't it? Yeah, it did. The fame, that fame brought him in Mm. America, the Mm. song. And so he decided to just go, off kilter and be a little bit more stark uh, and that's fine and then of course what happens when the contract runs out he makes Let's Dance well exactly that's the thing and also obviously he's got new paymasters hasn't he in EMI by that time and he wants to impress them and that's yeah. the best way to do it uh, because it was uh, which album was it whereby uh, the, one of the uh, record company executives sent him a letter saying uh, why don't you just go off to uh, Philadelphia and make Young Americans 2 do you remember I think that? it was Let's Dance it was that's Let's what Dance. they wanted that's yeah, right. this was a big yeah, hit in America let's, let's repeat that you yeah, know mm-hmm. Uh, and well, you know, and the other thing about this, I remember uh, talking briefly to Tony Visconti about uh, Scary Monsters, only because it, I only say briefly because it was part of the. We were talking really about the Berlin trilogy, and he did say, you know, that album is probably my favourite album I ever made with Bowie. He said, and it was like I've always thought of it as like our, our Sergeant Pepper. Which you can see in the in the very nature of it, can't you? Yeah, and and it was a stepping stone to making the really really ultra poppy Let's Dance, wasn't it? So I mean, mm. it, it wasn't like a, a massive um, shock to the system when Let's Dance had landed because it already had Ashes to Ashes, which is one of the greatest pop records ever. It is. And before that, you're looking at all the uh, the weirder stuff, with, yeah. you know, with Lodger and Low and uh, and Heroes. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. S is for Stacey Hayden. So this is from the CBC Radio website, Okay, Uh, The call came in the middle of the night in January 1976 and Stacey Hayden didn't believe who was calling. Bowie had lost his lead guitarist. He was in Jamaica renting Keith Richards' house. Renting? You'd think you'd just let him have it, wouldn't you? (laughs) He's not exactly short of a bob or two, is he? (laughs) Blooming heck. I wonder if he had a load of 50p's with him for the uh, lucky as well. Yeah. Anyway, when a roadie, a friend of Stacey's, had a tape of Stacey doing a Red Wing shoe commercial. It was Davey Bowie's manager telling the Winterbourne guitarist to get onto a flight to Jamaica the next day. 
Hayden recalls that his girlfriend hung up the first time the call came in uh, to her apartment in Toronto, but the message got through on the next attempt. Uh, we checked it out, and Air Canada said, I had a ticket to Oco Rios the next day, and I was on the plane at noon, said Hayden, when describing the moment to CBC Radio's afternoon drive nearly four decades after it first occurred. I didn't know one song on the guitar of his, but I went nevertheless, and in Jamaica, he met Bowie for the first time. Do you know, I'm just wondering how many people have not connected with somebody amazing because they haven't believed who they are on the phone. It must happen so much, you know? There's a great story about Roy Wood where he was in California and he's in his hotel room and the phone goes and he picks it up and I won't do the Brummie accent, uh, but uh, he's like, hello. And he goes, oh, is that Roy Wood? Yeah, hi, it's Brian Wilson here. F off, bum. Puts the phone down. <laughs> phone goes again. Ding, ding. Hello, is that Roy Wood? Yeah. It's Brian Wilson again. F off. Boom. Put the phone down. So I think it was like the third time of trying. He yeah. Went, don't put the, Roy, don't put the phone down. It is Brian Wilson. I, I'm just a big fan of yours and I would like to work with you. Yeah. I'm guessing it's probably more common than you think. And, and I'm always impressed by the fact that, you know, the really famous commercial person has a kind of perceptiveness to know that this is what they're thinking on the other end. It probably will take maybe three or four calls to say, look, you know what? This is me. It's yeah. not an imposter. The end of the story is that Roy Wood went to Brian Wilson's house and he waited for like five hours. And the maid, whatever you want to call her, yeah. kept coming out and saying, he'll be with you in a bit, I promise right. you. Not in that accent. Roy would just thought, I can't wait any longer. I know it's Brian Wilson, and it is Brian Wilson's yeah. house. That's fine. I've got to go now. So he got up. She went, no, no, please don't go. So she ran out. She came back. He's ready to see you now. And, and she marched him down to the end of the long garden into a shed where Brian Wilson was lying on the floor on a mattress. Is that right? Yeah. Really? There's loads of stories like that in there. There's yeah. a story about Brian Wilson uh, going out to a club and then going back to uh, probably the same house in Bel Air. Uh, with Alice Cooper and Iggy Pop and making them stand around the piano. He sat at the piano and they were at either side and they were singing um, Shortening Bread and giving parts to everybody. And Iggy was thinking, all right, I'll go along with this for a bit. But it went on for about half an hour and he thought, hmm. And then by about 40 minutes, he made excuses and had to leave because it was just repeating the same thing over and over. Well, I tell you what, I mean, and also with the Roy Wood thing, I I could be wrong, but I think I am right in saying that he ended up playing drums on something, which is ironic, because, I mean, you don't hunt down Roy Wood and then get him to play drums. (laughs) Anyway, maybe he did some other stuff with him as well. Uh, But anyway, this is back to Stacey Hayden. He said, I walk into this pretty elaborate setup at the top of this mountain, and to my right is this sitting, this skeletal frame of a man with about four colours of hair. He said uh, he wasn't intimidated by Bowie, but he was blown away by the whole scene he was experiencing. You would be, wouldn't you? You would, yeah. He said, I was just in awe of the whole thing because, gosh, I bet I hadn't been south of Cincinnati my whole life, let alone Jamaica, of all things. He still had to earn the chance to play with Bowie. Hayden auditioned for about 45 minutes. Bet that was nerve-wracking. Yeah, I think he was only 21 at the time. He was a young lad, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, David said, thanks very much. He walked into the kitchen, got a coffee or whatever, and the manager came in and said the audition was over. And I thought, well, at least I've got a neat little trip to Jamaica here. <laughs> he carried on. I went back to my bungalow and the manager came in about an hour later and I thought I was going to get an earful for showing up for an audition they went to all this trouble for and not knowing any of the songs. Hayden got an offer to play with Bowie on a North American tour. I was in complete shock, he said. He later played with Bowie in Europe and on other selected gigs. He toured with Bowie in North America and Europe. Uh, Peter Sellers tagged along in Europe. Stacey last played 1979-80 with Bowie on Saturday Night Live. He then toured with Iggy Pop and never played again on stage. He'd had enough of the road. Bowie, he said, was class-defined. Never would step on anyone's toes to be in the limelight. His sense of humility and grace I've never seen the likes of. 
When touring with Bowie, Hayden said he got to know the singer pretty well, along with some of his friends. Hayden said he last met up with Bowie a few years back when the rock legend played a show in Los Angeles. So this is obviously a long time ago. Yeah, about a dozen of Hayden's friends and family attended the show and went backstage afterwards. There's Elijah Wood, the mayor of LA, and Elvis Presley's daughter, and all these celebrities in the room, he said. And then he says, that's when Bowie comes torpedoing into the room, jumps onto my lap, and all the people come over, says Hayden. A brilliant, <laughs> brilliant image. But, uh, you know, Elijah Wood, there is a weird, weird connection there. Do you, do you know what that would be, Bob? Go on, please. There was a rumour at one point in time that he was going to be playing Iggy Pop in a biopic. Oh, is that right? I can't, yeah. I can't see it myself, but... Well, okay, you can't because right. they didn't make it. <laughs> That's why I haven't seen it, Mark. That's a good joke, isn't it, for me? Bye, everyone. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early, 